0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. We bring you conversations with remarkable people from across the world of the arts. If music, painting, film, poetry, novels, or multimedia are what pluck up the strings of your heart or make your spirits soar in difficult times, this is your stop. Or should I say, double stop. But let's not get ahead of ourselves with the violin metaphors just yet. First, be sure to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us your reviews, glowing reviews preferred, of course. Uh, Pose your questions and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more wonderful words, images, and sounds, you can pay us a visit at our website, www.glengould.ca. And while you're there, you may notice that we are a registered Canadian charity. If you'd care to support our work, Please make a generous donation. Now today, we have a special treat for you. An international musician whose work and career I've admired since her very first recording was released to huge acclaim back in 1997 when she was still in her teens. Hilary Hahn has charted a singular musical course in her career. She is, it goes without saying, among the world's top violinists. She regularly appears on those cringe-inducing, greatest 25 thises or Thats of all time lists, Uh, But it's an inclusion that is justified by the sheer beauty of her playing and her deep and probing interpretations. But she's so much more than that. She's insatiably curious, a breaker of boundaries. She is added to the repertoire through an ever-increasing body of new works that she has commissioned. She has performed with musicians from outside the classical world and has appeared on acclaimed film soundtracks. Early on, she realized the potential of social media and has gathered together a loyal and loving online community that cares about her as an artist, a person, and a role model. She paints, and she draws, and she does crafts, and she's just embarked on an exciting new venture delving into the world of music and artificial intelligence. And she has a gorgeous new album, Hilary Hahn Paris, featuring music by Prokofiev, Chausson, and Rolte we were so thrilled when Hillary agreed to take time from all of these other activities to serve as a juror this past October for the Glenn Gould Prize. And we were just so impressed by her passion, her inquiring mind, her interactions with her fellow jurors, and her kindness. But I've also come to really appreciate Hillary's goofy side, which she fearlessly displays online with such exploits as holding the world record for playing Paganini caprices while doing the hula hoop and uh, conducting probably the most insightful interview of all time with a fish. Hillary, welcome to the Gould Standard.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> it's so great. I love the fish interview, really. Um, uh, you were asking yourself all the questions that you get asked, right?
1: Yeah. Honestly, it was like a long distance relationship with my pet. Like I was on the road and it was like, there's my fish. Can you put the fish on the line? So I recorded an interview with the fish and it was interesting when, because the fish couldn't say anything, but I was just asking the fish, yes, the questions that I get asked, but it wasn't pointed. Like I wasn't trying to be funny or what I just thought it would be wacky a little bit. Like I interviewed a ton of other people. So let's interview a fish. Right, And um, it was really interesting because people thought it was this like thought experiment. And a journalist even got super mad and wrote a letter to my publicist um, <laughs> saying she's going to lose a lot of support among journalists if she continues to criticize us in this manner. Like she's making fun of us. I was like, I wasn't. Like, I actually like being asked those questions. It's fine. I wasn't, like, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't.
0: <laughs> My goodness. It was, such, it was such interesting, you skins. know, yeah.
1: that kind of, well, it, but it kind of taught me, like, when you don't give context, and you do something that has empty space in it, people will reach their conclusions, and that, in its own right, is a form of art.
0: And I have to say, you, you have exquisite interviewing technique because you gave your subject lots of space to answer. We're listening (laughs) carefully. Um, But I I did feel it when you said, when did you first decide that you wanted to be a fish? That must have been a question that you've been asked a good many times.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Not about a fish, but yes, about being a violinist.
0: So when did you first? (laughs) It's an
1: interesting question. If you want to ask it, go for it.
0: Well, actually, I, I want to start with something a little bit more recent, your new album. Um, what went into the making of that? Was it created during COVID, and why the repertoire choice?
1: The season before last, so the, well, years feel so irrelevant right now. Let's see, 1819 uh, concert season, I had a residency with Radio France, and part of that was to do a bunch of the concerts that I did with the Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France. If you go on YouTube, there's a Sibelius from that particular residency. We played festivals, we toured Europe together, um, a lot of stuff that wasn't exactly in Paris. Nico Franck is a very close colleague of mine. happens that he's the music director there, and he's been there for a few years. That orchestra is... The orchestra I work with in Paris,
2: mm-hmm. for
1: some reason, with the exclusivities, they're they're pretty intense. The Parisian exclusivities are intense, which means if you play with one organization in the course of a season, you can't like if I play with that orchestra, I can't play right. with another orchestra in Paris that season because there's so much competition for the audiences, and there's a lot of um, planning that goes into making sure that things are available exclusively to people within. A certain column, and then the next thing is available exclusively to people, so that the scene of Paris, the artistic scene of Paris has room to breathe. Um, and so because of that, I got into but then I kept being reinvited. So from my teens, I got into a cycle of exclusivity with this particular orchestra through I believe at least three music directors. And a lot of the musicians stayed the same, but a lot changed. So Mm -hmm. it was a gradual turnover if there was a change of musicians. And I've really gotten to know the character of the orchestra. I went back with so many different pieces over the course of these years that they kind of know, they know what to expect from me and we know how to work together. The fact that I had that relationship with Miko as well, and then he went to the orchestra, it just brought everything together for me because there was a music director who knew them, who was mm-hmm. building um, all of these um, tonal worlds with them according to his vision of what the orchestra could sound like and all of it really aligned. I had worked with him and the orchestra on a Rautavara Violin Concerto, which is spectacular. I learned mm-hmm. it for that because Miko was very close with Rautavara and I had wanted to learn the concerto. It's not always easy to find the slot to schedule something in, but Miko wanted it to happen, and so that gave me the incentive to learn it. When we were working together, I recognized this opportunity because how often do you get to work with directly with the ambassador for a defining composer of a generation right. in concert, on stage, like the person is in the rehearsals with you. It's right. actually really rare. So I said to Miko, do you think he would write – he was in his 80s. Do you think he would write – Rao Tavara would write – Another violin concerto for us specifically, and this orchestra. At which point Miko said, "Well, he's kind of he's ill right now. I don't think this is the right time to ask, but I will speak to him about it when he feels better." And that's the last I heard of it right. until after Raul funeral. And I assumed that the idea just hadn't hadn't taken flight. But then Miko called me, and he he had said, "Look, there's this." piece that is that piece we were talking about. And I said, what? How? How did Amazing. how did it get to that point? And um, yeah, Raul Tavara's widow had taken Miko backstage to uh, sorry, back to the studio. I'm thinking I'm thinking about concerts. After the funeral, she took him to the composer's studio and showed him this manuscript of this piece which had some specific traits that showed Miko that this was the one. It was almost finished. There was a sketch for the remainder. And so Miko commissioned Kalevi Aho, who was a student of Rautavara and a leading composer in his own right, to complete the piece. So that was the posthumous premiere that was the basis for this recording. In the course of thinking, how can we make this a recording and really honor the moment on a big scale, we got to talking about what else we would ideally like to do, and we were very aligned on that as well. Miko and I, the Chausson and the Prokofiev one. So I recorded with them in the eighteen nineteen season. Then I had a sabbatical, nineteen twenty, which I had been planning for a long time. And in that sabbatical, we did post production. So I was not really planning to do work, but when something like that comes up and it has the space to. Exists. It's not so bad to right. to keep working on something a little bit. So,
0: it's gorgeous, and obviously, knowing that Rathavara, you know, while he was ill and in his last months, was able to create this work. That's what a privilege. What a what a, what a moment to be able to perform it.
1: Yeah, it's really a fascinating work because when you work on a piece with a colleague who knows not only the composer's writing, but also the hidden stories behind whatever is written. Even though I never spoke to the composer about the piece, Miko could read the score and know exactly what the story was behind it without him having spoken with the composer about the piece. What had happened was he did talk to Raul Tavara and Raul Tavara had said, I don't want to write another violin concerto, but I would love, I've been thinking about maybe this idea of serenades. I would love to write some serenades that add up to a piece, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to do another of something I've already done, which is interesting because Rautavara actually would repurpose things from his previous writing and reframe them. There's some composers that just do that. That's one of their signature things. This piece that the the two serenades that Mikko wound up seeing after the funeral, it repurposes a lot from Rautavara's opera about two sisters from Russian nobility hiding out from an early age in Northern Finland in destitution. And then they, they had some specific arias between the sisters that made it into the serenades. Um, and the, it's a true story that Rautavara kind of obsessed about. And Rautavara himself was a very spiritual person. He focused on a lot of spirituality. It tended to be on the morbid side or on the dark side, um, aspects of like, um, darkness and transformation from what i understand yeah but the titles of these serenades it's a pair of serenades it's called deux serenades and the serenades were titled in french and finnish instead of english and finnish and that was mm-hmm. another sign to miko that this was for this it was for the french orchestra mm-hmm. it's for miko it's the serenades it's the thing I had worked with Rautavaara before on an encore from my 27 Encores project, so Rautavaara knew my playing. He knew me, so it was just kind of it was just clear that this was the thing. Right. In the serenades, the titles: the um, first one is Pour Mon Amour, and the second is Pour La Vie. So, ironically. Pour la vie, it was the one that wasn't finished. Mm -hmm. The orchestration wasn't completed, but the violin part was. The sketch of all the orchestration was. There's a moment where the stacking of staves in the orchestra part just stops. And there's just one line that sort of continues for a little bit. That's the moment at which he stopped. When we did the premiere, it was the closing of his catalog, but also the beginning of a piece that was a really moving experience yeah but the fact that the titles are largely positive and looking towards bigger like bigger aspects of spirituality like the humanity mm-hmm. within spirituality the idea of love and life miko said that was he thought that it wasn't supposed to be more than two in the end Mm -hmm. Those that Rautavara would intentionally end on the one for life, knowing that it might be his last piece. Right. And he would leave it on that sort of um, hopeful note. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a kind of a fascinating thing to know that information, which I would not have known just looking at the score. And Miko was also able to tell me things about interpretation like, In the opera, the style that Raul Tavara wanted from the singers was this. And the orchestra part and the violin part should not get overly emotional, should not get overwrought. You Mm -hmm. have to find, like, a middle sort of neutral ground where you are expressive but not pushing. Right, right. But it's very expressive, but it's not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's restrained. All of that. Yes. yes, yes, there's an element of calm that needs to go through it and mm-hmm. sort of neutrality and that's what allows it to breathe. You have to just sit in it, you can't direct it. And that's a really interesting sort of balance point to find mm-hmm. that also is not if you come from a concerto mentality, it's not implied in the score. It's just it's so fascinating. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have that premiere with those people buy that composer,
0: <laughs> right. and
1: then to be able to record it and um, put it out with this other repertoire that I love so
0: much. Um, well, I'm I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this, especially in view of that background, will be wanting to listen to this. And and uh, you know, those who still buy plastic, you know, you know where to get it. Um, your local independent record store near you, um, or those people who bring things to your door.
2: And
1: there's vinyl available online from there's Deutsche Grammophon. There's digital.
0: <laughs> Stream it, but get it. <laughs> anyway, I, I'd like to um, to actually go way back to your musical beginnings. You were a Suzuki Method kid, right? Yeah,
1: I started with Suzuki.
0: And what age were you when you, you started in the program, and what was that like for you? I, I mean, one thing about Suzuki that, that really... I've always been impressed by is that it contextualizes learning music in a broader framework of the development of the whole child and, you know, with some very positive ideals like, you know, fostering children with noble hearts. So uh, what was that that experience like for you?
1: Something I really like about Suzuki is it provides a framework for individual and group lessons and Mm -hmm. participation. So you get the feeling of community really early on, You get the feeling of working every day on something, and you see other kids playing more advanced things, and you kind of see their rate of progress, so you can have an idea of what's coming. And I think for little kids, because it starts young, I also really like that. It starts when kids are learning to do other things with language. You know, their vocabulary is growing at the age of four. Mm -hmm. Four is often a starting point for violin, at least. So their vocabulary is growing, They're, um, they're maybe learning about reading a little bit and just kind of aware of social things in a different way. It brings music into that daily development in a way I really like, and it also has set repertoire and recordings, and a large part of it is listening to the recordings, just being familiar with the pieces, and that means that you're listening to music every day as well. And just like children like to listen to the same story or watch the same movie over and over again, they become familiar with this and they'll be singing the music to themselves as they draw Mm. or whatever. It just becomes part of their fabric. The best part, I think, is that those are the things that every studio has in common, but the teachers are free to do their own version of the teaching, There are teaching methods, there's teacher training, you have to get certified in the the way, sort of a positivity approach to guiding the children to learn the instrument and learn the pieces. But beyond that, the teachers are welcome to add repertoire to the lineup, they're welcome to have their own specific teaching methods, they're welcome to sort of run their studios how they want. And mm-hmm. I think that's really a powerful thing because when someone is learning music, it's really important who your teacher is. That relationship yeah. is is really crucial.
0: Yeah, and, and I want to get to that, but but uh, on Suzuki uh, coming full circle, it's not so long ago that you actually um, did some recordings for Suzuki, right? That's
1: right. Yeah. I did the new sets of books one to three. So basically, when you get when you sign up for Suzuki and you get started, you have this sort of pack that you, that you buy. It's like a packet with a uh, music score, uh, like those, the music books, you know, mm-hmm. for book one, book two, book three. And it's, it's the sort of pinwheel design that I remember from my very earliest days of going to violin lessons. mm mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's amazing to see it. I remember wondering at the time, what is this design about? <laughs> what is this thing? And now I look at it and I'm like, I still don't know what it is, but <laughs> it's, it hasn't changed and it should never change because it's this thing that is just so tied to right. the Suzuki books. But anyway, it's very recognizable. So there, you get the book and then you get a CD and it used to be tape <laughs>
2: yeah. or
1: whatever. And You just listen to that every day. The kids listen to it every day. Parents, obviously, are participating and putting it in a player and then being around the kids so the parents hear it too. Parents are part of lessons. I like that a lot for, um, you know, on the one hand, making sure the kid is comfortable and on the other hand, helping with, um, you know, the practice continuity at home and then also just, you know, like as backup for the kids so that they have someone else in the room with them. I just really like that there's that triangle of learning. Um, mm-hmm. So the parents are learning with the kids. It's really cool because then the parents see it's actually really hard to play this instrument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's really hard to motivate yourself to practice. Like it's just the parents mm-hmm. learn along with the kid what it is to play music, even just for fun. Great. Suzuki is not about trying to make soloists out of every 4-year-old. It's I think people sometimes think that it's because kids start young in it, it's a super ambitious thing and it's, you know, too demanding for a kid to learn the violin at 4. Mm-hmm. But it's really not like that. It's just the presence of music. Music is the framework in which you learn other lessons. Right. You have a sense of community. It's, it's really, really cool. So I did the recordings that come with the kit. I think every, like, maybe 20 years they have a new set of recordings that they do, or maybe 10 years. I don't really know, but right. it had been a while.
0: Speaking of, of you know, those underlying values of, you know, fostering the, the total development of the child and, you know, helping them to connect to a, a greater moral and spiritual, you know, sense of self um, – it's kind of poignant for me that uh one of your early media appearances was in a place that really embraced that kind of vision, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Uh tell me about about uh being on with Fred Rogers and what that was like. That, that's obviously a few years later down the road, but
1: well, when I was a kid we didn't have a TV at home and so um I didn't really watch any TV shows. Of course, Not to sound ancient, but we also didn't have internet because it wasn't a thing that was in the house. This was the 80s. And you would, you know, whenever you would turn on the TV, you would watch what was on. So we would go on an annual vacation to the beach in New Jersey. And um, it was usually like a a week long or something like that. I would always want to turn on the TV to see if Mr. Rogers was on. Because I saw Mr. Rogers a couple times on one of those trips and then for the rest of the trip and all the trips that followed every year, I was just always turning on the TV to see if Mr. Rogers was on and I really loved it. And so the Mm -hmm. chance to be on the show, I didn't grow up watching Sesame Street. I didn't grow up with anything else. It was just in my mind. It was Mr. Rogers or nothing. So Mm -hmm. the fact that I got to be on that set and I got to actually tour the set as well as being part of it. I got to meet him. He's Mm -hmm. exactly the same person when you would talk to him as he was on the show. And it was really phenomenal to get to be in the same room. I really felt like anything I said could not compare to anything he was saying. So it took a lot of courage to actually participate actively in the episode. I didn't really know what information would be helpful or relevant, mm-hmm. but it was wonderful to be in the same room with him.
0: W- were you invited on the show? Did, uh, did mm-hmm. his his people reach out to you?
1: I don't remember exactly how it happened, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, it was an if- invitation. I played a lot in Pittsburgh at that time. I think that's probably how it came about. Mm-hmm. I played with the Pittsburgh Symphony really regularly. Lauren Mazel was music director and... Fred Rogers' wife was a pianist, and it was a musical household. So I imagine yeah. there was some overlap there, hmm. but I don't really know how it came about.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, his um, that sweetness and simplicity. I mean, it obviously resonated, and I, I think that he probably saw some of that in in your music, and uh, and wanted to kind of open that world up to to his to his audience.
1: Well, that's very flattering. I thought it was really nice to be able to be on the show and play some of the theme songs and then play mm. a little bit. I was, um, afterwards I was like, why did I interrupt Mr. Rogers? I interrupted Mr. Rogers. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, you, were, and it, <laughs> you can see it, was, it on
0: YouTube. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's, fine. It's, fine. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But it's just, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. what's going
1: through your head in those moments. It's like, it can never be a long enough moment because it's so special. Yeah. And yet it flies by and yet, it, time stands still. It was, mm. it was really, and I was definitely fangirling, yeah. and really, sort of present and not present at the same time in the experience. It was really an honor, and that was the first big show I was ever on too. Mm-hmm. So I felt super special yeah. to be in a dressing room and a TV station and all this stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, taking taking a, a bit of a. zigzag back. When you moved on from Suzuki, I mean, you went to work with Clara Berkovich. I was doing a little reading about her. What an amazing life story um, she has. She's still with us, I think. Uh, And that got me reflecting on the relationship of of musicians with their teachers and what a a deep relationship it is, but also how it actually connects back to, to the prize jury, which is it's one of the few areas in Western culture where we have this kind of honoring of the oral history because the, the lineage, I mean, we get into this lineage thing with teachers, you know, I mean, the pianists, like, my teacher studied with Leszczycki and Leszczycki knew Franz Liszt and, you know, I mean, but it is kind of like bringing you into this, this great circle um, that is unbroken to the past. Did you, did you feel that with your teachers?
1: Definitely. There's a knowledge of heritage in the teaching that is a real sense of pride. You look for who your musical grandparent, great-grandparent is, and you trace the lineage back. And it's amazing. You can actually, with almost any teacher, anywhere, you can trace it to someone who's recognized or recorded or something. It's the degrees of separation. Right and they're relatively short i think mm-hmm. the, it doesn't take six <laughs> right, to find exactly. someone yeah it's definitely a sense of of pride and that um that oral history and the traditions that are passed on it's hard when you're a student to know what part of it is being passed on unless the teacher is saying so my my teachers studied with various famous like russian and then like belgian and French and various teachers um, that were famous performers or pedagogues. So anyway, sometimes in a lesson, a teacher would say, oh, well, I remember when I played this for my teacher, my teacher told me this. And that's their way of passing down the story. Yeah. But a lot of the time they're just teaching you. And they might not even know what came from where. It just entered their knowledge. It entered their... The fibers of their being as a musician, and they're just passing on their observations. So it's really hard to know what you get from whom, but at the same time, you can be pretty sure that everything that your teacher is teaching you is tinged with knowledge from their predecessors and their musical ancestry.
0: Right. And it's a great way of um, of maintaining awareness of particularly style and, you know, different national approaches, because there, I think, were more clearly defined national approaches in in performance, particularly in the 19th century. Um, That actually contrasts with a a different trend in music education now, which is the technical perfection to win competitions. I I presume that that was a, since you didn't do the competition thing, did you?
1: No, I did a couple small competitions. I realized really early on that I did not have what I enjoyed as a healthy competition mentality. (laughs) I would go in thinking on no apparent grounds that I should win, but also insecure that maybe I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, I kept telling myself, I had this internal conversation like, I should win because that's my inner publicist, like, starting. I already had, like, a whole marketing picture in mind. Like, they should choose me because, you know, other students know. I remember when I was little, like, seven or eight, I, I think, maybe nine, I did a concerto competition at the music school I was at. And it was against lots of older kids where I was like, I'm playing Vivaldi A minor concerto and all these other kids know it, so they should pick me as the winner so the other kids can hear the performance of Vivaldi and feel (laughs) 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 And I had no idea about marketing or like programming or anything, but I remember distinctly thinking, why did they pick someone playing a piece that not everyone knows? This is their chance. Uh And there are other younger kids who are playing, they should pick a younger kid to you know, so the other younger kids can see that a younger kid can win. And I thought I played fine. <laughs> I did get like a special award in that in that competition, like jury acknowledgement or something like that, but I was like way too young to win it. I don't yeah. know what I was thinking. But, you know, I, I realized early on that the thing that I liked the most about competitions was the opportunity to perform something and the chance to hear other people. When I was competing... I couldn't really hear the other performers. I listened comparatively. I was like a little on edge. And so I didn't really want to engage with competitions. I I didn't find it like a thing that motivated me for the right reasons and encouraged me to be open-minded towards colleagues and learn from people. So fortunately, I was in a position where my career took off before I had to make a decision about doing a big competition or not. And I did win some smaller ones um, earlier that got me my orchestral debut. And, um, of course, I auditioned for Curtis. I got into Curtis. But that was the last audition I did. So I just got really, really lucky with the networks I happened to come across, connecting me to career opportunities that I couldn't have asked for. I had wonderful mentors. So for me, I was just very happy to not have to reconcile myself with the competition experience.
0: Yeah. And, And I think, you know, the downside on competitions is it's kind of a, you know, it's come to be for, for some young artists an all or nothing, like, you know, if I don't win, you know, I don't have a future. I if I, you know, so I'll go and do, you know, the next competition or the next one in hope that, you know, that will be the the breakthrough. It's interesting Glenn Gould actually did exactly one competition. It was the first ever Kiwanis competition in Toronto in I think 1942 and he won it. And uh, apparently on his way out the door he tugged at his mother's coat and said, "Mom, that's the last of one of those I'm ever going to do." Uh, <laughs> and became <laughs> and became implacably opposed to competition because he basically felt that art is not something that could be judged or graded and that, you know, pitting uh, musicians against each other was, you know, kind of an ethically questionable uh, undertaking. But, you know, he he had very strong opinions about almost everything. So, um, you know, obviously it is part of the reality for many artists and obviously for the launching of many careers.
1: I think they're good and bad. I mean, I think it's like, if it works for you, if you, it it really builds your repertoire. If you do a lot of competitions, you build your repertoire, you get the concert experience. You have to figure out how you are going to play something. You know, what are your priorities going to be? Are you going to lean into who you are as an artist? Are you going to try to be appealing to the most jurors? A lot of competitions, the jury isn't exactly impartial from what I've heard. And that can add a lot of stress and be confusing for competitors. Right, Um, And some competitions really do it right. So it just really depends on the competition, the goal you have as a player. I think any time you have a chance to perform in a new environment, it's worth doing Mm -hmm. it if you have the opportunity, because you'll learn something about yourself as an artist. I learned about myself in the course of doing the few competitions I did do. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not against them. Some people thrive on it. And they do give career opportunities. They give a moment in your career where you have the spotlight. But that spotlight is only yours for that moment unless you can either through luck or some kind of like masterful strategy turn it into something outside of that competition groove because the next year the competition winner is going to get that concert. You know, right. it's not yours for reinviting. If you can mm-hmm. turn it into a reinvitation, if you can, you know, use the opportunity to have a platform to establish yourself and your own identity as an artist while people are looking at you, then I think that's a really useful result of right. competition success. But all of that is about just being ready. You just have to be ready for what comes your way, whether it's a, in my case, you know, I was rehearsing with my pianist for some recital I was doing locally and I didn't think anyone was around. Someone was there like in the wings and heard me because their rehearsal was next. Mm -hmm. So it was a member of the Baltimore Symphony, heard me and talked to David Zinman, the conductor of the Baltimore Symphony and got him to sit in on a playthrough I was doing for other musicians. Mm -hmm. That's how that started. And another time, it was very similar. Someone talked to another music director who then had me um, as a guest a few times when I was very young. And someone was at that and heard it. and So I can trace everything back to basically two overheard moments. And it's not like you have to prepare like every is too much to be looking at every rehearsal every time anyone is around as the potential beginning of your big break.
0: Yeah. But
1: if you're just ready, and you are doing your work as an artist, that's the most you can actually really do.
0: And it's, it's so often those chance encounters that lead to, you know, the next step and the next step and the next step in the chain of events that you know, leads to an interesting result. And actually, that leads into the next thing that I I wanted to talk about. The mysterious process of a musical performance, because, you know, for many listeners and lovers of music who are not musicians themselves, who don't have the training and the experience, it's kind of like a magical event. You know, the musical performance emerges fully formed it descends from the heavens and it's just there and back when I was making records you know a lot of our our customers the same thing you know that this just sort of shows up in my record store and what goes into it all the many different elements of preparation and production and planning and designing and all the rest of it are behind the curtain so I wanted to talk a little bit about about that the huge range of complex skills and preparation that go into making um, someone who plays the violin. You know, uh, technical practice, learning to read, study of scores, memorization, becoming comfortable with the style, interpretive decisions, travel, rehearsal, and all of that. Uh, You know, uh, that's an incredibly complex series of processes. When... Did you get to the point where you had assimilated enough of that, for example, that you felt the confidence to select a piece of repertoire for performance of yourself, make those interpretive decisions in a way that you felt confident that this was a performance that was all your own, that that sort of thing?
1: When you start looking into it, there's a lot that goes into it. Just like if you think about, you know, what what does it take to get to work today? Yeah. <laughs> you had to you know, do all your training back then, like how did it start? How did you get into your field? And then, you know, micro details, like what did you have for breakfast? In what time frame did you follow? Where Mm -hmm. were you in your mind when you were driving to work? And when you arrived, who did you talk to? And what are you trying to do? Big picture and where are you in that like if you actually think about how you got to any moment in anything, there's so many ways to look at it. It's kind of interesting, I think, for me to look back and see the trajectory within myself versus the trajectory that people thought was happening. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty successful early on, and my career took on a life of its own. But I always had say in everything I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I was fortunate that the people who were representing me, the people who were planning with me, they were fine and encouraged me to not just approve, but like have a conversation about every invitation that came in. It wasn't like they would call me and say, oh, we booked you for this. We booked you for that. You should play this repertoire. You know, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't be doing that thing. Right. Um, people know you for this. I I was very insistent on doing things, not not exactly my way, but in a way that I felt comfortable with. And I think it was this inner sense for what I could sustain. I mm-hmm. didn't like being defined in a way that didn't feel like me. That's why I fought so hard against the prodigy label. It was so, so easy for people to say, oh, here's a prodigy because people need categories to talk about things. You need a right. word on a thing to talk about it. And it seemed to a lot of people like prodigy was applicable. But to me, behind the scenes. I was a student. I was working hard. I had lessons twice a week. I was playing all the repertoire I learned in lessons in student recitals. I had rehearsals. I had classes. It wasn't some, you know, sudden explosion of career at the age of 12 where everything else gets dropped off. It was actually my concerts were actually the result of a very systematic way of learning at the time. And they were just sort of like the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, Prodigy was right. But in a sense, I didn't feel like it described my process in the way that I was experiencing it. So I always have been aware of the language around my work and making sure that even though it might make for a more complicated packaging, so to speak, Mm -hmm. when you're presenting yourself and other people are presenting you. I just felt like if I got down a path that wasn't me, I wouldn't be able to act to keep it going. And I would probably have some kind of crisis of identity. So I don't know where that came from, but that was definitely a strong instinct in me. So that's sort of the, that's how I related to the external presentation of myself. As far as being a musician, you know, I was a student until I was 19, but I was performing full time at 16, and I could have been performing full-time already at 12. So Mm -hmm. when you're a student, you are looking to others. You're looking to your seniors, to your elders to um, guide you and give feedback. You're working towards a lesson. Unless you have a specific type of teacher whose main goal is preparing you to think independently, there's a lot of trying to incorporate what the teacher asked for. And then that becomes a mentality you take into, if no one informs you that this doesn't have to be the case, uh, you take that mentality into working with older musicians as well. And there are mentor-mentee relationships where you are sort of in a student role. It's healthy. You know, it's fine. You have to learn who you are eventually, and you're not going to know it all. So you do need guidance along the way. But I did myself go through a sort of suspension of confidence, I suppose, Mm -hmm. when I no longer had that guidance, yet my career was fully in motion and people had expectations and I didn't know how to decide, do I play it this way or do I play it that way? Do I crescendo here or do I, you know, do I accelerate or do I suspend, like I didn't have a system to make decisions, even little decisions like that. It wasn't that there was a shortcoming in my, in my teaching. It was just not a priority. I think in those days, like it is, I think now there's more awareness Mm -hmm. around that. So then I became my own teacher when I was about 20. I then went through a period where I realized that this was the case (laughs) and I didn't want to let people down, but I also didn't like that discomfort of not knowing who I was as an artist when I didn't have the framework of, yeah, that's a good idea (laughs) coming from someone else. So I turned to all kinds of sources to sort of test my preferences. Like at one point I was listening to a lot of non-classical music just to figure out what tone qualities I liked. Maybe I could mimic the singer's, like vocal intensity with the violin. Like, I like that. Let me see if I can do that. So
0: that's fascinating.
1: I learned to teach myself while I was running. It's, it's kind of like, it's like you're running and then you don't have shoes, but you're trying to keep running and put your shoes on at the same time without breaking pace. That's kind of what it felt like. Like you just right. have to keep going and you have to like rebuild your basis at the same time.
0: Oh, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, getting to the point where you were out on your own, where you essentially became wholly responsible without a a teacher or mentor or touchstone to help you, you know, arrive at certain interpretive decisions and really make the performances your own, you know, working without a net, so to speak, for the first time. It it really is what you're describing is the process of becoming your own artist. Um, exactly. So so now. Fast forward it into today, um, you know, let's say that you've decided it might be nice to add a certain piece to your repertoire. And I'm, I'm not going to use the example of a commission because that's in a, a way different. But, you know, some older piece of repertoire, let's say for want of a better. Quina
1: Concerto, which I'm currently obsessed with and have never performed oh. yet.
0: amazing oh my god we i used to record a lot of a lot of his music as it happens we yeah my my label did a big latin american music series um in fact i have some composers i really want to talk to you about Um, yes (laughs) but anyway the let's say the Franck sonata okay okay um all right so you get a copy of the score i I don't know whether you like the the Franck sonata i just picked it out of out of thin air but anyway um you know, what happens first? Do you listen to other people's recordings of it? Do you play it through, get a feeling for how it sets in the fingers? Do you begin memorizing it? Do you do a little bit of theory analysis? I mean, what are your first steps in developing your relationship with a piece of music?
1: That process, I'd say, is very fluid. What I say now may not be... It's definitely not what I did five years ago, and it's probably not going to be what I do in five years. So I just want to say that as a disclaimer in case anyone is listening and thinking, oh, this is how she does it. I should do it that way too. Mm -mm. (laughs) You have to do it the way that's going to be Uh, meaningful to you and the way that sticks with you. There's the way that gets you where you want to go, and you're lucky if you find it. (laughs) Yeah. And you just keep trying until until you find a way that works. Um, But yeah, for me right now, I would say my first step is listening to recordings just so that I know what I'm aiming for. And actually my creativity is very much like the first spark of my creativity in anything is a reaction to something. So it's not that if I have a blank slate, I then know exactly what I want to do. I kind of have to For me, I think my strongest interpretive starting points are when there's a piece and I've heard it and I'm like, I want to do it differently. Mm -hmm. And that is my source. Like, that's my goal. I have a vision for how I would play it and I think I need to play it that way. Somehow that version should exist and I haven't heard it. And that's often why I pick new pieces that I'm learning that are not brand new to the world. I know what my way of playing it would be. And Mm -hmm. so that's a good starting point for me because if I know what my relationship may be, then I stop listening to the recording and I just learn my part. Once I kind of know where I'm headed, then I don't need to keep reminding myself of what's there because I need to have my own relationship with the music. And so it starts with fingerings, bowings, Um, within that, I start to have a feel for expression because a lot of techniques will, um, like they will restrict certain forms of expression or encourage them. And there's a relationship there as well, because do you go with what the physical result of playing these notes is, or do you go like, Against it. Mm-hmm. So I start having those thoughts like, oh, even in doing bowings, like, do I want to do this long a slur or do I break it? You know, what is in the piano part? Where are the phrasings? Why is there a slur here? So even like a slur is when you connect all these notes on one bow. Yeah. And stuff like, um, do I slide up into this note? Do I play like really high on this string or do I cross across? And that is also a musical decision. So as I get more familiar with it, I'll play through a few times. I won't write any fingerings or bowings in as I'm figuring them out. And then eventually after a week or so, if I have time to do it every day, then I will have solidified certain like approaches technically that then determine the, the process of the music. And then it's just familiarizing myself with the technique and with the pieces. I used to memorize everything. I used to memorize it as one of the first phases, and I found that I actually missed a lot of information in the course of that. I would get away from the score really quickly, and then even if I would practice from the score, I would have embedded this early version of it in myself, and I wouldn't even see what I was looking at. I would mm-hmm. practice from the score over and over and over, but because I'd memorized it without doing you know, mezzo forte on this particular note, I wouldn't even see the mezzo forte when I was looking at it. So now I memorize through familiarity or I don't memorize it. If it's not happening, I use the music. I've just learned that what I care about more as a professional is being free from worrying while I'm performing so that I can focus on the performance, on the expression, on the communication with the audience. Ultimately, people don't really care a whole lot in their own experience, whether you're playing from the music or whether you're playing by memory. It's not the primary audience priority. It's for someone listening to a performance, it's feeling connected through the music, feeling connected to the performers.
0: Right. I I think there's a lot to be said for not starting with the score as the very first step. You know, just from my own experience, um, back in, in my record company days, I had a very strong inclination to try to find pieces that have been unfairly overlooked, sometimes Mm -hmm. composers that have been unfairly overlooked. And I would, you know, do research and find some really, in many cases, quite wonderful pieces, bring them to chamber ensembles, for example, and say, try it. I think this might make a good record and they would play it through. And because a, the composer might not have been one of the big names and also the work was completely unfamiliar, but mostly because on first read-through, you really just don't know where everything goes and how the parts work together. Never once did they think any of the pieces were any good the first time. And they would say, oh, this is obviously, look, you know, it's, you know, Composer X, you know, this isn't Brahms, you know, and for a good reason, this isn't very good. And they'd say, well, just throw it away. We don't want to do this. And I would encourage them to play it a second time and then they would start to see something. And then the third time, when they were actually getting familiar, they would start to like it. And then eventually, in many cases, they w- would actually get to love those pieces. So in a way, the score can be a bit of a, of a barrier, I think.
1: My reality check question to anyone who is thinking that a new piece isn't very good, like a piece that's new to them or a piece that hasn't been played very much is – okay, go play a Brahms string quartet without any expression while you're counting. (laughs) Just count it out. Play really, like, be concerned about your timing. Don't do any phrasing. Brahms does not just happen on its own. We start with a precedent. We start with a recognition. But if we started from scratch with Brahms, people would be so perplexed. You have to apply the same empathy and, like, realization to pieces that are not familiar that you do to pieces that are familiar.
0: Mm. Just like
1: if someone says after a concert that they didn't, they don't like classical music. Well, it's not that you don't like classical music, perhaps it's just that you didn't like that player or maybe that composer isn't your person, you know, (laughs) like just because you don't like, um, I don't know, maybe you don't like pop ballads doesn't mean you don't like pop music. So there's there's a lot of, again, categorization that people do because of language and because of self-identity. And um, you do have to make choices like you like this, you don't like that. You do this, you don't do that. You say this word, you say that word. You know, a lot of it is based on assumptions and uh, familiarities and that's human. Yeah. But I think we need to ask ourselves when we have an impression of something that's not equally balanced by the other thing we're comparing it to, are we really comparing on equal footing or are we comparing on assumptions?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So again, you know, I I keep going back to to the early part of your career, but it it really is fascinating to me how young artists develop. And, you know, I think your U.S. orchestral debut was at 11. If I'm remember correctly yeah that was
1: with the chamber orchestra and then at 12 with major orchestra
0: right exactly and then you began performing internationally when you were 14 and a couple years later you made your debut at Carnegie Hall and suddenly you're becoming a celebrity but also you know you're standing in front of world-level orchestras with you know Acknowledge master conductors, concert masters who have a lifetime of experience, and you're delivering a performance of a major concerto. Was that a lot of pressure? I mean, was it a, a little overwhelming for you uh, to be plunged into that level of you know, spotlight and musical responsibility so early?
1: As I said, I had been building my repertoire through a process. I had lessons, and then I had student recitals, and the way it... I looked at it. I love. I always loved performing. Performing was the whole reason I did this. Um, not because I would be in the middle of things, but I love the energy of performance and I love that hyper-focus, but also expansiveness that you get when you're on stage playing music with other people, with the audience. It was just a zone I didn't get otherwise because it's such an intense adrenaline-fueled experience. For me, it wasn't a source of fear or angst. You know, and in, in fact, I remember, you know, when you're little, like you have maybe a, your teacher stops you in your lessons or like someone overhears your practice and stops you and until you're doing something wrong. So when I was really young, when I got my first opportunity to perform, I was like, oh, no one stopped me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I
1: would look forward to the performances because I knew I wouldn't be interrupted. I knew I would get to play the whole thing through. <laughs> and I would get an adrenaline high, too. Like, what's not to like about this? And, um, you know, that's not to say that I didn't get – I called it performance nerves because it's not Uh like I was nervous, but I didn't get extra sort of adrenaline rushes beforehand. But it just really, for me, was a super positive experience to perform. So the bigger performances meant – Bigger adrenaline, you know, (laughs) like more people to play the music with. The first time I played with orchestra, I was was blown away by the fact that every string player... I was used to hearing piano accompaniment, and I almost couldn't concentrate because there was vibrato in the sound around me, and all the string players around me had individual tones, and there was so much dynamic color everywhere in surround sound. So for me, that was phenomenal. And Mm -hmm. to get to do that at an early age, it just became part of my sequence of learning. So I would play, I would learn something in my lessons. I would play it in student recitals. I'd play it um, several times in different contexts in professional settings. And it was just an extension of the learning process that I was doing, an extension of the performance enjoyment that I had. And I got to travel. So traveling was really fun for me. Hotels, it's really special, you know, take out pizza, <laughs> junk food, <laughs> TV in the room. What? We still didn't have a TV at home. So, you know, I got to watch HBO when I was on yep. the road and yeah, like carry out Chinese food. We were a very yeah. health conscious household. So the road was like my all my little indulgences I got to do when I was traveling. But I wasn't, you know, on my own as a teenager on the road. I I had I had a parent with me, but
0: yeah. yeah. And, and, and I've always thought, you know, a lot is made about the the power of the conductor and he's leading the orchestra and so on. But, you know, as a, as a concerto soloist, basically, you know, when you get to the cadenza, you make them all shut up. So basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if all is lost, at yes. least you have the cadenza.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. I have sometimes
1: felt that way that maybe the, we didn't have enough time to work on the balance or the hall isn't working in my favor or whatever. And, Instead of wearing myself out fighting it, I sometimes just think, okay, my arms are getting tired. (laughs) I'm pushing my tone too much. I'm just going to be in the fabric of the music for a while. And when I have a moment to project, I'm going to seize that moment and project. And then it'll be more of an interpretive decision than Mm -hmm. a struggle. So I think the cadenza is that. (laughs) It is that time. (laughs) when you can show your entire range. Because no matter how collaborative someone is as a conductor, how collaborative an orchestra is, you're orienting with other people, right? And then the cadenza, you can take as long as you want. You can Mm -hmm. suddenly play it the opposite of what you've been playing. And you don't have to think a little bit like, oh, it's going to feel different if I do it this way and everyone is with me or not with me. Do I need to give a cue? And you can play as quietly as you want. You know everyone will hear it so that is a chance to actually increase the range of the entire piece Right. so that the orchestra can sometimes play their loudest and you can play your quietest by yourself. I think it really helps the whole piece.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of playing solo, how about that for a segue, you, you're 16 and, and you make your recording debut and uh, rather audaciously in um, three of the Bach Sonatas and partitas, these amazing miracles, and it, honestly... If anyone listening doesn't know this music, just go and get Hillary's now two records of it because the idea that Bach could create this kind of universe for a solo string instrument to have fully developed counterpoint and implied counterpoint, um, master all of these dance forms and create such heartbreaking beauty, it's it's really miraculous, but it's also like scaling Everest. And you decided to do it on your first go-round um, did you get warnings that maybe this wasn't the wisest career move and that maybe you should do some Beethoven sonatas or something nice and romantic and, and so on and so forth? You can you have a pianist at your side? Yes and no.
1: I wanted to play those pieces for the first recording because I knew them best of anything in my repertoire. So it just made sense. And honestly, I didn't get much pushback from the record company, and I can see why now. Having tried to organize many recordings, there wasn't much to lose from them. They didn't have to invest in hiring an orchestra. I could have all the time I wanted. We recorded in Troy at the Savings Bank Music Hall. And it was nocturnal recording sessions because you could hear the street noise. But we had as many days as I felt I needed. You know, we did each piece in a separate time. So it wasn't all the—we the, didn't record the whole album at once— We spaced it apart so I could have performances leading into the recording, and then I would do some more performances leading into the next piece that we would record. And it enabled me to have the space and freedom to do a solo record, and it enabled the record company to give me that space and freedom so I wasn't learning under so much pressure. I had no idea how to do a commercial recording. I had recorded with a producer for radio, um WQXR in New York was yeah. a big supporter of me early on and because the son of the programming I think the programming director played in a community orchestra that I played as soloist with and his dad happened to be there his dad then afterwards said hey um why don't you come I'll you know I'll organize for someone to help you like keep an eye on the score and stuff and you can just record some performances for us and then we'll play it like a recording in our regular programming and you can get recording experience and then we have something to play of yours. And so these things that happen, these random moments, so that was, I had had that experience, but I had not done anything where there was a full crew and a new location and a you know, listening booth that they rigged up in the on the fourth floor and all that. But I got to listen back to the entire session as I was doing it. I got to play a take and then whatever I wanted to hear back, I could hear back, which would not have been possible in an orchestral recording. So I think it was a super good decision to do that as the first one. It was actually in many ways the safest decision I could have made. But people were not at that time, I I don't want to take full credit for this, but I think that I established a precedent of it's okay to play pretty much any repertoire young, as long as you have a relationship to it and you have an identity in it. People would, would definitely, you know, write about journalists would write about the fact that I would play solo Bach and recitals at, at, as a teenager. Yeah. And it was like this taboo thing or, you know, huge risk I was taking to play this monumental repertoire at the age of 14, 15, 16, 17. And a lot was made of it when the record came out. Um, I think there were some concerns on the part of the producer ahead of time. But then when we were all there, it was clear that I was in my element and this was the best decision for me as an artist. But yeah, a lot was made for a long time of the fact that I did my first recording Like I recorded it when I was 16 and 17 and it came out when I was 17 as this music that a lot of people were even not learning until Um, they were in their 30s or 40s, um, much less performing as a signature set of repertoire.
0: Right, exactly. I don't
1: hear that discussion around young performers choosing to record solo Bach as their first or second album anymore. I think there's a normalization to it.
0: But yeah, and, and I, think I would like to think
1: it, I helped enable because it was a kind of an uncomfortable conversation to have to have over and over again. But I got used to
0: it. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you know, particularly some of of those those delightfully self possessed British reviewers, you know, who always have <laughs> a, a a sort of a a snidely disparaging wor- word for for the colonies, you know, probably did sniff a little bit. But anyway, the, we have the, them in North
1: America too.
0: They're, they're country cousins of the of the ones in London.
1: Like anyway. even well meaning like it was just a fact. It was yeah. it was basically a fact that you don't make a statement with solo Bach until you're in your prime, which is like thirties, forties, fifties, that's when you have some authority in it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was uh, it was a little different for Glenn Gould when he chose the Goldberg variations because it wasn't so much that that was regarded as this you know this pinnacle that you had to spend your whole life. No one was recording the piece. I mean, virtually, I think there'd been like two or three other recordings ever of it, you know, Landovska and Rosalind Turek. So that was the part that was different. It wasn't that it was, you know, such a, and everyone thought it was, you know, highly uncommercial. And I don't think that's, that's true of the Sonatas and partitas either. Um, but it They was, took a
1: while to get off the ground as well after they were written, but not as long as, as you're yeah. describing with the Goldberg.
0: Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the point is, it was a fantastic career launch. It's, the, there was that first recording it still stands up beautifully and um and it actually underlines the fact that that you've already alluded to which is that um Bach is one of the real cornerstones of your musical life can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him and you know whether it's the you know um violin and piano sonatas or the concerti or 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 the solo uh sonatas and partitas
1: It's funny. For a really long time, I didn't understand why people liked my Bach so much because I put the same commitment and process into every composer I played. and I felt equally strongly about solo Bach as I did about the Brahms concerto, as I did about, you know, Debussy Sonata, about contemporary music, and everyone kept talking about my Bach. (laughs)
2: Mm.
1: I was like, what do they like? I don't get it. Like, what are they it is, I'm playing it, like, I'm, it's me playing all this different repertoire, like, why Bach? And I think over time, as I developed my way of playing it and my range of ideas within it, especially the solo repertoire, I've played the other repertoire, but the thing that seems to really stick for everyone, partially, I think, because of the portability, you know, you have everything in one instrument, so I can take it anywhere, <laughs> Yeah, It doesn't have to be in a certain performance space. Movements are two minutes long sometimes and 15 minutes long others. And so there's a thing for every occasion.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: and it changes the room when you have one instrument playing the entire piece. Very much like on piano, you can play entire pieces on piano. But it's unusual for violin to have so much material at the very same moment on a single instrument. Almost no one has written... No one has written music for solo violin like Bach wrote. People have written sporadically sets of works for solo violin that are true to their own nature, but this level of complexity and directness that's in Bach's solo writing for violin is really, really unusual and really suits my way of playing. I think as I developed my... Like, in every concert, I try to... I don't do it on purpose. I don't say, okay, I must do this, but I I find it interesting and fun. So in every concert, I try to do something I've never done before in a piece. I practice all the different ways I can think of day to day, but then always in concert, my mind connects differently. So I come up with some little tiny turn of phrase that I could never have found in the practice room, but it just pops into my head. So I try to do it. And then it's in my expressive vocabulary and I know it exists. So I could do it also in the practice room. Playing solo Bach constantly as encores after almost every concerto throughout my entire career. Um, I've put solo Bach on every recital almost without fail. And having that constant addition of novel ideas within my own repertoire. I think now I understand, well, I definitely now understand why people liked my box so much because I find for myself, I find infinite opportunity to express myself. I don't feel internally constrained by stylistic concerns. I grew up listening to the Sharing Grumio Milstein style of playing mm-hmm. Bach, and that's what I was taught. So very old school, sometimes you know slower tempi, more romantic style of technique, contemporary instruments. But once I got out of the you know school mode and was trying to make my own decisions about things, I started listening a lot more to Baroque recordings. And so not only do I have that foundation of like, sort of the very solid old style of, of like, solid, like, weighty
0: right, yeah. <laughs> old
1: style of playing. I also really liked a lot of things I was hearing in performance practice and the, you know, the 2000s and then the the way it's evolved since into sort of so many versions where it's right. very authentic and then there's hybrid and then there's just contemporary style. I think now I can do a lot of that range and different days require different things. There's no other repertoire I have that much variety with. Yeah, I've made a decision that my way of playing, my foundation doesn't feel right to change. So I'm not in the state of um, revolution within my Bach. It's always me. It's always based in that old school style, but with so many different inflections at my fingertips. I've grown into my understanding of what people liked about my playing of Bach, as I've played it more and more. And as I started to do, um, I, when I recorded the rest of them, the rest of the three for my, my recording a few years ago, I actually recorded it twice. And for the release of the recording, I did a, a solo tour for the first time in my life. I had never done solo recitals until that second Bach recording was released and I had a Bach focus that season. Yeah. I just didn't really feel comfortable and I didn't want to. I didn't know if my endurance musically and physically would hold up enough to warrant a tour Um, and I really loved working with other musicians. When I was doing my solo recitals, I realized that there was a way I needed to sort of walk into my own identity and stay in it and believe in it that I hadn't forced myself to do before because I always had other people I was working with. That taught me so much and also reminded me all over again of why Bach suits me.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think that, especially with the, the sonatas and partitas, and I, I can't explain why or what it is about the pieces, but I, I think it's repertoire that invites a particular intensity of listening and a particular... Intensity of focused attention on, you know, every nuance of the performer's interpretation. So I, I I feel that there's a kind of a particularly strong bond that happens between, and clearly a, a chance for for the audience to to bond with with your Bach. But I, I have to ask, you know, no temptation ever to uh, to try out the old gut strings and uh, and uh, convex bow.
1: I don't have anything against trying it. I, I just have not pursued trying it, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't probably perform with it. I just mm-hmm. haven't been in the same room where it's already set up. So right, I, right, I haven't right. done it. And that's probably an oversight on my part because it's not a lack of curiosity, it's just a lack of initiative. I haven't I haven't yeah. initiated that experience. But um yeah, it would be really it would be really interesting. But it's just, for me, not practical to tour with like a totally... It's a different technique. I have to learn how to play that instrument with confidence, with ease, in order Mm. to do the music justice in a performance. So I think for me it would be more of a research thing because I'm, I'm content with my foundation in that repertoire. But I could definitely learn, I can always learn... A lot, and you never know. Maybe in the future, that'll be something that I will build on.
0: Well, you know, it, it, it's nice. I think we've we've arrived at a good place because, you know, when the period instrument folks really started coming on the scene, they were a little mm, absolutist, like our way is the way, and you know, we have discovered the one true way. And you know, there was a lot of pushback from people playing, you know, eighteenth and nineteenth century. Uh, music on, on modern instruments. And I think there's now just a, a level of ease and comfort between the two that, you know, they acknowledge and recognize each other and respect each other in a way that wasn't possible at the very beginning. So, you know, I think it's just a, another way of, of of approaching the music and, you know, great things happen sometimes and, and uh, you know, it just gives us as listeners a little bit more opportunity. I, I wanted to to ask a little bit because i'm fascinated about the relationship between musicians and their instruments and particularly string players because i i think that's a very powerful bond uh of course you hear these terrible stories about you know instruments being left in taxis and and sort of you know the the nightmare scenario but you know can you tell us a little bit about about your violin? Um, you, you may have more than one, but I'm thinking about the Viom here. Yes, and uh, and its history and and what playing it has done for you in, as a musician.
1: I've actually played on two Vioms in my career. Um, I have I've spent maybe twenty years playing on one from 1864, which was a Gorneri model. And I started playing on it when I was a young teen. It's and it it's mine. I, you know, mm-hmm. it, we managed to to buy it from the family that owned it previously. So that was also a personal connection mm-hmm. that was meaningful to me. It's a pretty big instrument, and over time, I struggled against it more and more. Which is interesting because when I first started playing on it, I wasn't full grown. Yeah. <laughs> But I grew into it, but then it seemed to be harder and harder to work with it. It just felt like I didn't integrate my own um, technique as my mm-hmm. technique changed into the violin's ability, and I kept taking it to shops after a while. Like, it feels like it has a cold, or it feels <laughs> like it's not speaking, or like... There's something blocking it. It really felt like there was some kind of block. And so I played on it as long as I could. And then I happened to – because I, I really liked it. I liked mm-hmm. what it had been for me and I liked what I was able to do with it. But I did feel like I was I was not able to fully express myself. I didn't have like – I do something and it's magnified by the instrument. Yeah. It's definitely like I do it and the instrument filters it. And I was just kind of struggling with that filtration feeling like what I was doing wasn't coming across anymore.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it could have just been a psychological thing. It could have been history. Like I played on it for so long. Right. And I had so many different things that happened in my life. And I was a kid when I got it basically. And I became an independent musician in the course of playing on it. But I coincidentally found um, a very, very smart dealer Knowing I liked VEOMs had invited me to view to preview a VEOM auction, mm-hmm. and it was the first time I got to be in the room with more than one other VEOM. It was a room full of VEOMs. They were oh. on a rack, like top rack, bottom rack. It was probably wow. 15 or 20, and they were in different shapes. It was a collection that was being sold, so they were in different shapes, um, not shapes physically, but like in different shapes as far as adjustment and being adjusted to suit themselves. And um, I have a very particular bridge setup that I use. I have a slightly lower bridge than normal. Because VOMs are very powerful, they don't need a lot of tension on them. I like to let them ring a little bit more. So I have a lowered bridge, um, teeny, teeny, teeny bit, and also a little flatter because I don't like playing solo Bach while trying to do four-note chords with a string that's popping up in the middle of the chord. Yeah, yeah. So I I have the bridge as flat as I can to enable me to play those super virtuosic pieces without bumping other strings, but right. then I don't want it to be so curved that I can't play a four-note chord at once if I apply proper pressure and speed to the bow at the same time. When I was trying these violins, I just had a hunch about this one. It was a Strad model from 1865, and it happened to be... I was in London the violin shop I was going to a lot at the time was close to the, the dealers. And so they allowed me to take the violin to the shop to try a bridge that was similar to mine or to sand down the bridge that they had. Mm -hmm. Cause that changes the way a violin rings. Also, I was allowed to have the uh, the sound post moved a little bit, basically an adjustment and a sort of preliminary setup to test mm-hmm. it out. I just had a feeling about it. It was not playing super well, but I had a feeling it had a ton of potential. It was pristine condition. It was one year later, 1865, the other popular model that VOM did. So I had been playing a Gornary model. This was a Strad model. I thought at least I would love before VOMs skyrocket even more in price, I would like to have another one. Um, And that will be the end of my buying, my violin buying days. like, that's it. I'll have these two siblings. Um, And I didn't really intend to concertize on it, but I was having so much trouble with the other one. No one would really be able to tell by listening, but it's just I was not relating well to it. I got injured. I was trying to get the new one set up. And I think a lot of the cause of the injury was just this struggle against the the violin within myself. When I came back from the injury, I continued playing on the older one that I'd been playing on because I didn't want to shake things up too much. But then as soon as I felt solid, I really worked on getting the other one a bit better to play because it was slightly smaller feeling. It felt easier. Sure enough, it, it really delivered in all of the ways I had suspected it could and my instincts were correct, and that's now my instrument. Now, I'm really glad I got it because that is the primary instrument I – that's the only instrument I play. I also have a Peter and Wendy Moose um, violin. It's a contemporary violin, which is patterned off of my VOm, but it's a, my, my um, 1864 VOm, the mm-hmm. older one I played on. And it's a sort of hybrid design between their standard model and the VOm one so that I could switch back and forth. I could still switch back and forth between that and this one. I haven't needed to not play on this one since I started playing on it full-time. It's Uh. really given me so much more freedom. The fresh start, I think, was super helpful for me. Yep. And I feel like with this instrument, for whatever reason, (laughs) whether it's a placebo effect or reality, when I do something, it comes through it. It doesn't get in the way. It doesn't reinterpret what I'm doing. I try to play it a certain way, and it sounds like that to the audience. I also noticed reviews reflecting that. Interesting, (laughs) interesting. previously, and it's not all about the violin. I also went through like a lot of process to get to this point. But a lot of the time I would play a certain way and I would put a lot of emphasis on something and I would give my all to this aspect of my playing. The reviews would keep saying the same old thing, not acknowledge what I was trying to convey – and in fact, say the opposite is complimentary, but it was not anything I was trying to yes. emphasize. It was just like everyone was missing the point. But that's my responsibility. It's not the reviewer or the audience. It's it's my responsibility to tell the story the way I feel it needs to be told and to figure out how to do that. So when I had this violin I was becoming more comfortable with, I also was able to express myself in a more true way somehow. Yep, And the reviews started to change tone. The comments from audience members started to be different, but in a direction that I had been trying to go in. So this is all part of the evolution. Like, it's not about the instrument. It's just about how you feel as an artist with a certain instrument. It becomes your voice. Fortunately, we can change our voices as yes. violinists.
0: <laughs> but that... Actually illustrates a point that, that many people may not appreciate. I mean, these are both great instruments. In fact, the earlier instrument yeah. I think uh, belonged briefly to Paganini. Uh, or was, oh, it's it, it's yeah.
1: modeled after Paganini's Gornarius,
0: right? Right, and but also what you say about it, I think he called that Gornarius the canon. So you know that suggests that it was wow. kind of big yeah, sound, kind of a big bruiser. Uh, <laughs> but but two great instruments, but only one of them was the ideal one for you. So that is uh, about, you know, finding that communion where, you know, the the physical object merges into an extension of your musical personality. And, and you know, I always like to use the metaphor of it becoming kind of a uh, a metaphorical extension of your nervous system, right? So that the barrier sort of disappears between, you know, wood and fingertips, and it really is just, you know, a a vehicle for expressing the music that, that, that's inside you waiting to get out. Um, I think that's, that's really an amazing, I mean, that, that is one of the most mysterious, one of the most mystical things about about the violin, is how that bond between um, player and instrument comes to to be.
1: The ideal is that you think it and it happens. That's what practicing is all about. A lot of people think practicing is for becoming more accurate, but it's really musically and technically, it's about creating that set of messages where you're aware of what you're doing, you know how to get to where you're trying to go, (laughs) and then you don't even need to think about how eventually at the pro elite athlete level, I suppose you could compare it to. Eventually you'll be on stage performing and you won't be thinking about any of the in-between process. You're in the moment, you have an idea, you don't even acknowledge what the idea is and it happens. You right. don't have time to define it, but there's this, I guess it's called a flow state. Um, but yeah. So for me, the instrument should not be a thing that you're working through or working around. It should be the thing that is, it trans is the translator.
0: Right. Exactly. If you think about it, you know, you've got a a craftsman, an artisan, an artist. Again, if you're a layman, like, learning how to cut out those pieces of wood and get them into the, so that they fit together and they're perfect and the the right shape. And, you know, that there's enough rigidity that, you know, the strings will hold in the right place and the glue will hold so that the neck doesn't collapse and all, all of that stuff. No, it's about creating something that is capable of basically transcending its physical self when mated with an artist. So like I say, it's, it's, it's one of those mysteries and um It's also a miniature concert
1: hall. It has its own internal acoustics. It projects outwards. It's the it's like the oh, it's like the concentrated orange juice. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. You, know, you get the concentrate and then you put it in the water and so the, the instrument is the concentrate and the concert hall and the air inside of it is like the glass right. and the water. Um and whatever doesn't happen within the instrument can't happen in the concert hall.
0: Right. Well, since we've been singing the praises of your violm, you know, um, I don't know, is your violm a, a he or a she? Um, can can we... Let's can just we, say it's
1: non-binary.
0: Uh, let's let your non-binary um, <laughs> take a bow. There okay. it is. It's beautiful. This
1: is the 1865. Um, I, is
0: this one of the numbered ones? Uh, he numbered most of his, his violins, right?
1: Yes. If I'm not mistaken, it's 2591. Yeah, it's numbered.
0: 2591. Mm-hmm. That's... For the nerds model. out there, <laughs> yeah. For for the nerds out there, and speaking of nerds, I I have to ask you, big
2: nerd. <laughs> uh, yeah, well,
0: big nerd. Well, yes, your your guest spots on on two set violin. Uh, for people who don't know, um, two uh, two lovely young violinists from Australia, uh, Brett and Eddie and Eddie mm-hmm. uh, have this uh, runaway. Now, who would have thought that a violin nerd? youtube show would become a spectacular hit but you're you're like a regular guest on that and that's yeah. where you did the the hula hoop competition the what's what they call the the ling ling challenge uh, <laughs> yes. well
1: actually it started because they were doing a show we met um I reached out to them. I commented on social media, and they're like, let's do a collab. I'm like, what? Yeah. (laughs) I didn't Mm. know that's how it worked. Um, And so they happened to be in New York when I happened to be in New York. So we met for coffee, and we were all, like, super impressed to be in each other's company because Uh I love how they're an example of a creative team that had a vision and a sense for who they were. And no one else could quite envision it, but they believed in it and they persisted and they proved everyone wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So far wrong. They are basically a musical comedy duo based around violin, but everything they do is super educational. And I'm a huge fan of their work. Turns out they're a big fan of me and my work. So it turned out we were in the same city at the same time. We had coffee after I put a comment in their social media like I just commented on a post and they're like "Hillary, <laughs> let's collab." I what? Yeah, sure. So, we were trying to figure out ways to work together. They had a tour and we were trying to figure out is there a way I could be a guest on their performance? So, that's when we did the hula hoop performance, actually. we made a little con like a little competition within the three of us, but it was really just the performance mm. and i I suggested it because I could already hula hoop and play the violin. <laughs> I said, you "Can that. you guys hula hoop?" And they said, "We can learn. I think we can kind of do it. We've never yeah. played violin and hula hooped at the same time." but i was like i can do that what piece would we do how do we do this we're three violinists what do we play right. um, and i'm not a comedian so like how do i fit i don't want to mess up your like your rhythm stick
0: right yeah. yeah so
1: that's that's what we landed on and we wound up being really good working together yeah. so every so often we'll get in touch again like we're in, we're kind of in touch but you know we'll yeah. be like hey <laughs> do we want to do Are something you- right now <laughs>
0: pretty pretty hilarious as well as your own uh uh Lindsay sterling dancing and oh.
1: <laughs> yeah that was a really popular video we did there was a ling ling challenge ling ling is a character they invented that took off and it right. was just a small like little drop in the bucket in a larger video they did but that became one of the the central right. themes of of their their work and so yeah. ling ling is this fantastical violinist who practices 40 hours a day and can do anything. So the Ling Ling challenge is stuff that's impossible. Right. So they, right. they, but I could do most of it in one form yep. or another, yep. and so it was really fun. But there were things I just could not do that I almost was crying, laughing, <laughs> trying to do.
0: <laughs> it, it's a great episode, and people should check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, but I think that's that's really important for classical music: is humor can be a great demystifier, and it can be a great way in for people because I think we just. Part of the issue that classical music faces is, is an image issue. So if you can basically, you know, uh, take the mickey out of it a bit, it, it, it helps. I, I, um, I have to talk about your um, new venture, Deep Music AI, and this intersection, which everyone is practically talking about, with, between AI and um, musical creation, musical performance. How did you get involved with that?
1: So we're, we're like a, we're a community of musicians and AI scientists. We're just starting. Um, my co-founder Carol Riley talked to me about the topic of AI and music and, um, also AI and music composition. And we just had such a great conversation about it that we decided to work together on this. She represents the tech side. Um, she's very involved with, um, AI in different fields out in San Francisco. She's founded some startups and um, she understands the, the role and risks and benefits of AI much more than I do, but I understand the concerns and needs of musicians and how technology is often developed without the voices of the fields it's developed for. And we realized that there's a gap. There is a small number of scientists building music programs within AI. And then there's a lot of misunderstanding within the music world about what those programs might do to people's careers. And the reality is that AI is happening. And there is this moment right now where actually music and musical challenges within AI teach scientists a lot about what AI is capable of and what it is not, because creativity is one of the most essential aspects of humanity. If you can understand creativity in a deeper way, then you might understand more about humanity and be able to create AI that can help humanity as well as hurt it, right? And anything that is a tool can be used to improve or destroy, And so I think what people are afraid of with AI and music is that AI will come and replace people. But in all honesty, it's impossible to replace a creative mind because the AI is only as good as the program that someone wrote. So AI is actually the result of creativity. It's not um, a separate entity that is trying to suck the soul out of things. And I think it's really cool that right now there's a moment where Music could be influential in the future, the future of technology, the future of so many things that people will be interacting with. It can be a test of this technology, but also musicians and composers could wind up benefiting if we can just speak up now about what we enjoy about working with it, what the challenges of working with it are, what we're afraid of, um, and talk about the ethical concerns before things are already established. So we're both sort of exploring the possibilities as well as connecting dots on potential pain points in this evolution. And our main goal is not to create a product, our goal is to connect people and make sure they're speaking with each other as things are being developed rather than at each other. And the people actually on both both sides of this conversation get what they need. There are a lot of AI scientists who love music and play music really well. So it's just a matter of like connecting their knowledge with very specific knowledge about certain aspects of being a professional musician that may not be, you know, primarily apparent.
0: I think it's it, it's really wise because, as you say, it's coming, it's here, it's, but it's it's going to continue coming, and uh, if you want it to develop in a way that is, you know, humane and and really a liberating force for creativity guide it now get involved with it you know don't run away from it don't hide under the bed you know um so and it is
1: an amazing it's an amazing technology that we already use a lot that is so varied and i've learned so much from just observing some of the projects we've organized we did three world premieres which were um, during during a pandemic, we did three world premieres online of pieces co-written, um, but not really equally co-written. But that's kind of an easy way to describe it. Between really clear identity composers and certain AI programs, that they tried to figure out how to interact with, <laughs> like what would help them and what what can they take out of this creative challenge, right? And so it was really actually special during the you know fall of 2020 to be able to be premiering these pieces that really are experiments, but true compositions in yeah. and of themselves.
0: I, I had a chance to do some work with a uh, a project that Yamaha developed, which was essentially an AI analysis of performing style, and it resulted in a uh, performing piano that basically could be a recreation of Glenn Gould, because I used Glenn Gould, but could perform in Glenn Gould's style, as the AI understood it, with live musicians. So you could actually have a live performance with Glenn Gould, which, you know, may seem like a stunt, but I actually think it's a fantastic teaching tool for students to be able to, for example, what would it have been like to perform with Rachmaninoff? Because, you know, to understand his style, the Russian Romantic style at at source, in a way that it would be very difficult to recreate otherwise. But anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not Glenn Gould, right? It's not yeah, him. It's, it's not. It's the data that the AI has. But there is no opportunity to work with Glenn Gould now. So the AI Glenn Gould has its own identity and its own purpose. It's a thing that wouldn't exist otherwise. And that's what I'm really excited about with anything that's creative. Like, what doesn't exist or what does exist but not quite in a way that is is practical like where are the gaps yep, and i do that exactly. with repertoire selections like what exists what doesn't exist what needs to what gaps need to be filled what do i miss what can i you know create that will meet my needs so i think that applies to technology but it applies to Great. repertoire and everything. well
0: it, it's deep music ai and I have already checked out the website, and there's some amazing examples. I know it's very early stages. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what else comes out of it. I I know we're running a little short on on time, (laughs) but um, I did want to just sort of tip the hat that I'm actually not wearing about all of the commissioning that you do because, A, it's good for the composers, but it's also really important to remind people that this is not um, a 19th century art or an art that somehow you know sort of stopped it in 1930 whatever past date that it's a living art and that you know like amazing um creative voices are still out there and they uh, and they deserve support but their music Needs to be heard and have really powerful advocates, as you are. So, you know, I was just listening to the uh, to the Jennifer Higdon Concerto last night, and what an amazing piece, you know. And it wouldn't really exist but for you and the twenty seven encores from your encores album, and and I know many many other pieces beside.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I've always just. Since I graduated, since I was given the opportunity to make decisions and commission works, since people asked me if there was anything that I needed funded, (laughs) which is a really nice place to be in, um, I have just been commissioning music on a sort of steady trajectory because as I add older repertoire that I haven't played before, I also want to add new repertoire to the repertoire (laughs) in addition to my repertoire. And I think the opportunity to, um, to listen to and play a piece by a composer you can talk to and a composer who's living through the same times that we're living through, we know how we feel about a certain event that happened and the composer might be writing about that in a way that we don't relate to that event. But we know what that event is. It makes music more direct in ways that we can also apply to older music once we've had that experience. You know, we may not have lived without electricity. We may not have had, you know, 20 children. (laughs) Um, You know, but we know what it feels like to hear music written in a certain time that we were in. And it just helps make those mental connections, I think. But more than that, it's more music. It's yes. more voices. It's more opportunities for people now to participate actively in the musical scene and leave their legacy. So every chance I can commission a composer and know that I can see that piece through to a very established point, I take that opportunity.
0: That's great. And as well, you know, one of the, I think, liberating things about music being created today is it. You know there are composers who have a very different conception than one rooted in the past about the expressive possibilities and techniques for the instruments that they write for, and that really stretches the the boundaries of what that instrument. Yeah, I mean, for example, I mean it's, it's not the violin, but you know, um, your collaboration with Hauschka and and the prepared piano and all the different things that he was able to to draw out of out of that instrument. So, you know, we continue to evolve. Uh, and develop, I can't let you go without a quick lightning round. And um, okay. so I'm going to say, all right, very quickly, would you ever consider, A, teaching, not masterclass, but like, you know, the in-depth stuff? Yes. Yes? Okay. Um, Is there a B? Uh, there's a B. Okay. Teaching, <laughs> teaching, teaching your daughters the violin.
1: Ah. Well, I have my own opinion on that, but I will yeah. not share it with the world. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. Conducting.
1: Not, I, I generally say never say never, but that's pretty a hard no for me at this point.
0: Okay. Hosting your own NPR radio show. No. Okay. Too
1: too much work. I wouldn't be able to find any time to practice.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, hosting scoring. something else, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, guest hosting. Guest yes. hosting. Scoring a film. Yeah. Okay. Um composing more broadly. Yeah. Okay. Um, writing a book, and if so, what kind? Novel, memoir, nonfiction?
1: Yes. And I would want to write about something that's helpful for people. Like a thought book or like, you know, an approach to like the mentality of something around music.
0: Right. Um something to
1: like lighten the pressure around some things, yep. I think.
0: Okay, and the finally, w- finally, would you consider exhibiting your own painting and drawings? Totally. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Well, maybe we'll we, once the pandemic lifts, we'll we'll. You notice bring a my nose? Ha-
1: my nose have to do with the amount of work that go into <laughs> this thing. I don't want to conduct because I would have to learn a whole new News education. I, I can't. I know I can't. Right. I don't have the bandwidth. Right. And like, yeah. Yeah, hosting an NPR show is right. a full-time job.
0: I How don't have this? any let, job let, openings. <laughs> right. Let me modify the conducting. Would okay. you consider conducting if only the repertoire was the concertos you already play? No. Okay. Okay. Different reasons. All right. Um, <laughs> I like
1: to have a. I, I like to have a friend up front uh, taking the heat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, and then finally, I mean, I could ask a dozen more questions, but. What, uh, what are you working on now? What, what is on the horizon, um, whether it's repertoire or other special projects, um, as if you don't have enough on the go?
1: <laughs> well, right now the record is coming out. So there's a lot of content creation. There's, um, a lot of just sort of preparation and I'm doing some interviews and meetings. Uh, we're working on, um, storyboard for a music video I'm really excited about the people I worked with there's an art set that I just made a video about Um, and I'm currently in like the middle of 100 days of practice which is an initiative I started on Instagram a few years ago this is my fourth round of 100 days that I've done over the course of those years we have like 500,000 something other posts under that hashtag that we can look up Um, and I'm really proud of that. That's, uh, it's been a big evolution for me personally as well. I'm looking at all aspects of my career, making sure that I have, um, equity in those aspects, um, social justice issues that, um, making sure that my work is aligning with my values. So I spend a significant amount of time on that every day. And, um, I'm learning material, and learning pieces, but I don't know when my next concert is going to be at this point. So, I'm learning Hina Stara by Violin Concerto. Yeah, I'm learning so Carmen for the first time. Stuff I was supposed to be playing this season that got canceled. You're so right. I'm learning it anyway because I I wanted to do it. So I'm continuing to do it.
0: That's absolutely amazing. And you know, just in in parting, you know, since you touched on your social media, it's a big oversight on my part not to say that you know what you've done in social media has been so good for the music but also you know clearly you've you've kind of embodied creating community through Mm. online and and it's really inspiring to see how much your followers um are are getting you know emotionally and, and they see support in you and you're clearly a great role model for them and um and, you know, who would have thought, you know... Um, right? It's the violin, right? You know, it's this, oh, it's such elitist and it's so exclusive and, you know, they come up their nose and everything. It's <laughs> art. It's expression. And, yeah. It's humans. Yeah, yeah you exactly. Know? So, no, I think
1: that for me, I started social media as a fun artistic expression. And my community that likes what I do, they found me and it grew from there. I think if you do the things I never did social media as a promotional thing. I didn't do it because I felt like I had to. Um, I like to write and I like to take pictures. And so it was kind of natural when I ran out of time to do regular blogging that I would then do like micro blogging (laughs) on social media. And I've appreciated how visual artists and other artists use their – Words on social media, and it's inspired me to take that back into the the music scene, into the classical music approach. And um, I think I've really sort of built that community because the community built itself around me, just doing things that I like to do, and they resonated with it. And as I saw the identity of that community, I could then um, adjust what I was doing on social media a little bit to um, be helpful or of use to the people who were there. Because I think when you have that many people connecting in one place, it's a great opportunity to actively connect them and, you know, be meaningful in some way.
0: That's fantastic. And, and so long may you post, long may you play. And, uh, and thank you so much for, for sharing, uh, a big piece of your afternoon with us. It's It's been such a joy. Um, and uh, we'll here. be following everything that you're doing um, coming up. I, I know that all of us will. Um,
1: I have to say that jury experience, it was my only jury experience to date. And I normally don't do juries because um i'm not sure what my role would be exactly in the discussions and all of that but the way you approach the jury like from the foundation's perspective and the the role that the the award has in in the foundation's profile but also in the music world and the way the candidates are selected and everything it's in its multi-artistic disciplines it's it's really like those salons that you imagine mm-hmm. could exist between artists or like a dinner party discussion that you wish you could be a part of, but you never quite find. And so it really was being on the jury was really transformative for me and hearing other artists talk about things that I had been thinking about, but hadn't talked about before and discussing, you know, various artists work together Really, really transformative, and I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you so much for that. And, and I have to say, you know, I, I've now sort of presided at um, six or seven of these juries, and they're always a a huge revelation to me. But what I found especially inspiring was that you chose an artist that many of you didn't know Already, so it wasn't just a you know an instant recognition thing. And I have to say that you know Alanis Obamsawin, so the Abenaki filmmaker, uh, musician, and um, and visual artist, who was your choice, is such an inspiring person. You know, the conversations I've had with her just sort of raise me ten feet off the floor. And mm-hmm. we're in the process of organizing what I hope are going to be some really inspiring events if you know we're going through the planning and have to go through the fundraising part of it um but uh it's going to be a really exciting thing to introduce her work to a lot of people around the world who don't know it already so I can't thank wait. you very much for helping us <laughs> helping us with that <laughs> thank you again Hillary and uh, as i say we'll be we'll be watching listening and following uh, we really appreciate it take care
1: thank you you too
0: Hi Olivia. Hi Brian. I uh, I have to tell you. I just love Hillary Hahn. I love her as a musician and as a person, you know, she is inspiring to a whole lot of people.
2: Absolutely. She is a a pleasure to talk to, a pleasure to work with. We I first met her during the Glenn Gold Prize jury this uh this fall as we were talking about and even then just an absolute pleasure to work with individually and as part of a larger group
0: and uh for those of you who um don't have uh such a a direct acquaintance with the classical violin uh hillary's music is a great place to start There's something for just about every taste. Um, If you want uh, a nice, easy intro, of course, her Bach recordings are fantastic. Um, Her uh, album with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto and the um, Jennifer Higdon Concerto, which is a a new piece, uh, is fantastic. It won a Grammy, and the Tchaikovsky is a beautiful, romantic piece with a lot of fireworks. So you might want to start that. But of course, there's also that new album, Uh, Hilary Hahn Paris. So do check it out. And uh, as far as her online presence, Olivia.
2: Yes. If you would like to follow Hilary's 100 Days of Practice, which she spoke about during this conversation, you can find her on Instagram at Violincase. And of course, if you would like to follow and keep up with the Glenn Gould Foundation, we are across all social platforms as well. You can look us up everywhere. And our website is ca. There on the site, you'll find all things regarding this podcast, all of the fun projects we are undertaking. And of course, you will see that big red donate button right at the top because we are a registered Canadian charity and we rely on your support. And we are very grateful for
0: that support too. And how. Thanks so much for all of you who listened in today. And uh, And now, as a little encore, our friend Mr. Edison had a, uh, a taste for the violin, too, maybe not quite the same level as uh, the, uh, <laughs> the artist we just heard. But if you'd like to play us out, Mr. Edison,